Before we get to this week's episode, I have some community notes. First off, thank you to everyone who said they enjoyed our conversation about a World of Darkness mummy. We weren't sure if departing that far from Core Mage was going to be received well, and it very much was. With that in mind, we're going to continue on and talk about 2nd Edition Mummy, The Quick and the Dead for Wraith, as well as a few other books always with an eye towards adding them to Mage, because we're still Mage the podcast after all. I'm also eyeing Hunters Hunted 2, the Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition Umbra book, Paranormal Investigator's Handbook, as well as a few Chronicle of Darkness books, such as World of Darkness Immortals. As a note, we will be taking off for American Thanksgiving, or the U.S. Thanksgiving, as well as for Christmas and New Year's. Sometime in February, I'm going to start preparing for my next actuarial exam, and we will go to every other week until April. Also, if you're listening before November 21st, the call for writers is out for M20 Visions and Vistas. This is the Mage, the podcast Umbra Storyteller Vault supplement that we've been kind of working on for the last year. If you'd like to participate in the project, a link to the survey is in the show notes. In addition, we will be accepting community submissions for notable mages, umbral, night foe, realms, rotes, and a few other things at a later date. Thanks so much to our generous executive producers for giving us the funds to pay for 60,000 words, which is a revised tradition book or about the size of M20 Operatives dossier. As of now, I also have a few writers participating who haven't written for Mage in, I'm just going to say, a while. And you may recognize their names once the author list is released. Getting to the scale where we could fund a book has been one of Mage the Podcast dreams, at least since I started, and thanks to everyone who's made that happen. With that, this week's episode is an interview with Jen Peters of Dork Tales, who does a Mage Explainer podcast called Paradox. We talk about teaching Mage to new people and how to explain it, and then I play one of Jen's recent episodes starting at about the 27-minute mark. The end of her episode, I then read the Mage the Podcast credits. And with that, on with the show. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Tara Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And our guest today is Jen Peters, who is doing what I could never do and successfully explaining Mage. Jen, how you doing? I was splendid. It's one of those things where I saw your project and it was like, how dare you do the thing that I've been thinking about for a while better than I probably would such that it actually existed. I've come to the conclusion as an adult, the greatest insult I can ever bear is if someone sees me that and sees that I've agreed to do something and knows that there is no chance I will have it done in time and just gracefully does it for me. There is nothing more offensive than somebody doing that. They could just, a string of racial epithets I would much prefer to somebody seeing my fundamental human weakness and compensating in a way that improves the world. So how dare you? Also welcome. (laughs) Yes. So this thing that has forced me to make a willpower roll, what is your project paradox? I agree with that. I recently finished up a project where I'm just like, let's see what everyone has ever said about the Umbra. And after 50,000 words on that, it's just all in my head now. Yeah. So my basic question is, what do you do with the fundamental internal inconsistency of the game? Like, my favorite one is, midway through this project, I realized that in M20, there is no way to get to the penumbra. It's just just not mentioned. Astral projection, you go from the periphery straight to the high umbra and step sideways at the middle. But everyone's like, what happens when you step sideways? Oh, you go to the penumbra. How do you tackle the slipperiness, I'll say, of our shared love in game?
fucking hate the Vidari. Anyway, it's like this. It's like, how was your interview with Terry? He just cursed for 45 minutes. None of it makes it into the final episode. I wish someone had told me that. So what is your goal? It seems to be a two-part of I shall understand the game and I shall force that on others. Despite the fact that we are eight years after the launch of M20 Core. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess this seems is seemingly a similar question, but slightly different. Why? Why do this to yourself? We understand the what and the intent, but uh, you're coming up with a script, you're reading through it, you're doing the background research, you're comparing it to previous editions, and it doesn't end. Like, anytime you're like, I want to compare these two things, you're like, well, I just look at the M20 and then I look at the revised, and then you realize, oh, this is actually touched on in Gods of Monsters, and then... Uh, Book of Madness revised, and then Void Engineers had an addendum on it, which actually calls back to Book of Mirrors or something like that. It's all built upon a house that seemingly Kathy Ryan and Richard Dansky built over a three-day weekend in the late 90s. So why, Jen? Why? Hmm. <laughs> it wins at that. <laughs> What do you think it is about Mage, though, that eight years afterwards, people are still finding this and wandering onto the forums and saying, hey, how does transmutation work with the structure and durability system? Or just to pick a thing where you're like, Duh, where it's uh, overly complicated and it's the rules equivalent of stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night. What do you think it is about Mage that's still pulling new people in? Because as you mentioned, we never did the explainer. I never thought there would be an audience for it. I thought it was just going to be Grognards where this was like their third edition at minimum. And anyone who started after first edition was just going to be called New Guy or something like that. As time goes on, more and more of the listenership is people where this is their second RPG.
what is the process to go from this is the thing I want to explain to having that final script? Because the thing that gets me, and if I were to do this project, and one of the things that, that prevented me from doing something like this and why I'm so glad yours exists is I hate the facile understanding of mage where tradition becomes character class and is your paradigm and there's nothing else. So what was key to you to get across about the setting and what is your process to go from your recent episode, recent dish episode where you just explained the sphere of life, where you go from this is the idea to this is the recorded thing that is now in the episode. You get intimately familiar with the oddities of your own voice, I imagine, at a critical point where you're like, I say buttress really weird. As Jen mentions, the episodes in general are 15 to 22 minutes or so with one or two that are longer. That is an indication that even... I don't know about you. I sometimes like consulting references that I think I am beyond. It firms up a bunch of things. It cements my understanding. It verifies that I'm not missing something basic. And it's kind of like getting a nice hug. Monty Cook did a book called Your Best Game Ever or Your Best Game Yet or something like that. And I read the entire thing just to make sure there was not some fundamental area of storytellingsmanship that I had excluded. Like, oh no, I never offered them a foot rub or something like that. And you're like, we got her off of a foot rub, Terry. That's why, that's why your listenership is so limited or something like that. But you also come from a... I'm going to say a dramatic background. You've done so many Dork Tales actual plays. How does that experience change how you either approach or explain the system? Almost no mage metaphor is helpful, I've found. Whenever people are like, yeah, it's kind of like this. No, no, it's not. You're just making it, you're just making it worse. Some, there's, but there's like a one in 10 chance of it actually working out. <laughs> and as you mentioned, there are a few things more humbling than having an audience for something like an actual play where you literally have to explain to the audience what you're doing. And if you don't, your listenership goes down or you get a bunch of confused people asking you questions, both of which can be quite humbling.
Yeah, that that feels like it'd be the, kind of be the the crux of that there, the uh, the stuck in space portion as you do. What is the stumbling block that people encountered? that you didn't anticipate and vice versa. What's the thing where they're like, oh, no, 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 I totally get that. And you're like, I had hand puppets. I thought this was going to be much more convoluted than that. But yeah, I'm glad you picked up on it immediately. Do you feel you are you are held to a different standard being a lady on the internet? Do you think that there is a, a barrier for some people and that like you have to bring receipts in the form of showing your research and having done actual plays? If your take is bullshit, it's because the source is bullshit, which is valid for a number of the spheres. Yeah, <laughs> this says more about you than it says about me. Yeah. Um, this is not a commentary on our podcast, but on uh, the necessity of availability of therapy in the United States or, or wherever the commenter may be coming from. You're doing the explainer. There are a few publications out there that are kind of helpful. The quick start ain't bad. It's not great. And then you have, for instance, Sebastian Freeman's Believe in Magic, which is just here's here's a bunch of places stories can go. What material, he said, asking entirely out of selfishness, do you think should exist that would smooth that on-ramp. Because to me, the three legs of the stool are a simple explanation, an example of play, and a story I can run. Uh, what materials do you think could exist to supplement your work that would make it easier to onboard people to uh, the world of darkness, and Mage in particular?
do you think it's that the, the the solution to that is we butch, we just put together a big book of paradigms, we meaning the mage community or something like that, rather than any of us individually? Is that the solution, or do you think there is this better er explanation that would really get it across to people who are new to the game? I think part of it is they are very poorly named. Uh, a mechanistic cosmos includes the Chinese celestial bureaucracy. A world of gods and monsters includes Dickian Gnosticism. Hermeticism is might makes right. It is not quite the case that your choices are only animal, vegetable, or mineral, but I think the names kind of do them a disservice. And I would, yeah, periodically I do this thing where I call Josh Heath um in an excited sweat as we all do i'm this is this is how jen and i know each other actually uh judge it does and then you call josh heath spontaneously very specifically it's odd i don't even know how i got his number but i'm like yeah like i figured out a flowchart to figure out what your paradigm is are you special yes no do gods exist yes no and i could never make an actual flowchart that didn't become circular, which on one level is the most mage thing that you can have. <laughs> Where it doesn't actually give you an answer and you just asymptotically approach a paradigm, uh, which, which would be lovely. And then we had Book of Secrets, which is only paradigms that are awkwardly smashed together. And then we had Book of the Fallen, which complicated things by introducing political views as paradigm. Like everyone should get to vote is not a paradigm. It's something I believe in, but it is not the same way that I believe the universe is divine and alive. <laughs> Those are two kind of, one can kind of stem from the other, but unless you have the spirit of, spirit of Deimos powering your magic, it's not really a magical paradigm per se. I asked Jen to explain her project, but as all good interviews with mage creators are, it has become therapy for me. So I appreciate that, Jen. <laughs> but as you mentioned, you've done a bunch of of other things. Are there any other projects you've done that you think a, a mage in Old World of Darkness general audience would be interested in in addition to Paradox? Oh, that's a good name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Last question. Opportunity pops up. You are tapped to say, what should the last book for M20 be? What do you think that book should be? You get to add one book to the canon. You don't have to write the darn thing, but you kind of need to have at least a thumbnail sketch outline of it. Uh, we don't believe in addition wars here. As George Takei said, Star Trek and Star Wars fans need to learn to coexist in the world so we can fight back 
sparkly vampires. There aren't enough mage fans to divide along those cleavages. So, so amen to that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jen. If people are interested, paradoxmagepodcast.podbean.com or Paradox in the podcatcher of your choice. I list the Podbean link because there are a lot of things out there called Paradox. So even Mage the Podcast doesn't really narrow it down in the podcast averse. So sometimes having something else to grab onto would be useful. Uh, the link to Dork Tales and their work and the games that Jen had mentioned will also be in our show notes. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. And now here is a sample episode of The Paradox Project by Jen Peters about the Umbra. This is Jen, and you're listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast. These bite-sized episodes are designed to get you up to speed and comfortable with Mage the Ascension rules and concepts. Reread the books so you don't have to, though we do recommend it. Without further ado, welcome to Paradox. Welcome to episode 13 on the auspicious date of Friday, October 13th. I want to say thanks for bearing with me as I had COVID and lost my voice and couldn't get another episode out a couple weeks ago. I didn't mean for episode 13 to actually come out on this day, as I had originally planned to talk about the correspondence sphere first, but this feels like a happy coincidence. What wasn't a coincidence, however, was the topic for this episode, the mage cosmology. If you're unfamiliar with the idea of a cosmology, it basically just means the structure and evolution of the universe in this case from the perspective of Mage the Ascension. As the World of Darkness is our world but worse in many ways, a lot of its overarching cosmology is similar to ours, and all of the settings within the World of Darkness share one cosmology, they just each look at it from a different angle. We're going to focus on the Mage mindset for this episode, as it is the one that matters most for our purposes, but there will be references to Werewolf the Apocalypse, as the Mage cosmology was built upon the Werewolf one, and there may be mentions of other lines when those crossover points come up. The reason for putting this episode so early with all of its new vocabulary that we will define as we go along is because the next episode will be focused on the sphere of spirit magic, or dimensional science for the technocrats out there, and that sphere requires at least a semi-solid grounding in the basics of the overarching mage cosmology. With all that being said, welcome once again to episode 13, Reality Check. To start, let's talk a bit about the terminology that will be used in this episode. Mage is a game of infinite possibility, and therefore it is also a game of overlapping, clashing, and inconsistent worldviews. Often, these worldviews have different terminology for things, or, even better, use the same words to mean different things. Not only that, but the World of Darkness sourcebooks, not just Mage, have a tendency to be internally inconsistent as well. Now, this could be explained as having a large setting, multiple writers, and new editions that contradicted older editions, or we could look at it as a messy existing setting where we can take what suits us and leave the rest. You don't need to know everything in order to run a World of Darkness game, or even use any of it at all, but it's there if you want it. That all being said, the mage cosmology can be incredibly confusing. For this episode, we will be using specific terms and definitions as we understand them, and if that clashes with your idea of the mage cosmology, we can agree to disagree. Speaking of confusing concepts, the mage cosmology doesn't fit neatly into how many people view our world. Here, our senses tell us about three main dimensions, four if you include time. While this episode will attempt to categorize the reality of the world of darkness into those four dimensions, and it is perfectly reasonable to continue thinking of reality that way, it may benefit your understanding if you acknowledge that not only is our reality complex, but adding in a supernatural component makes the complexity explode exponentially. Directionality in this case is an exercise in futility, but many of the terms used to describe the mage cosmology use words like higher or lower, 
And if that evokes a sense of one realm being above or below another, that's reasonable, if potentially incorrect. In the Mage the Essential world, all of reality is referred to as the Tellurian. It encompasses all dimensions, realms, planes, and levels of existence, both known and unknown. The Tellurian is the stage upon which the Essential War is fought and where mages manipulate, explore, and seek to understand the nature of reality. The word Tellurian refers to a mechanical model for demonstrating the rotation and orbit of the Earth, and most mages use this as a metaphor for all reality, what is, what was, what will be, or might be, and even what could be. Which brings me to the tapestry. The tapestry is often described as the weave of reality. It represents the intricate and interconnected fabric of existence that encompasses the entire Tellurian. Every aspect of existence is woven together with every possibility, and it is the mage who can tug threads back and forth or cut and rearrange them as they see fit. Or, well, as much as consensus and paradox will allow them to. Of course, due to this effect on the tapestry, mages also affect the overall cosmology as there is the potential to create new realms as many mages have done according to the historical metaplot. However, there are enough realms to talk about already without going into any of the new ones that may or may not be created by enterprising mages, so it's easiest to start with what we know. In this case, that would be Earth, our physical reality. The Earth is separated from other realms by a metaphysical barrier called the Gauntlet. Many of the other realms have their own gauntlets, but Earth's is the one most mages will be concerned with. Back when there was more mystery around, you could enter the spirit world from any particularly wild or mystical location like the American frontier, or deep in any cave or forest, or by metaphorically falling off the edge of the world. These places are all examples of shallowings, areas where the gauntlet between the earth and everywhere else is paper thin. These shallowings still exist in the modern world, but they are few and far between, and either have mythic ties or are in places humans rarely venture, like the deepest depths of the ocean. The gauntlet waxes and wanes over the centuries, and often from location to location, but the last 200 years have seen a stiffening of the spiritual barrier, most likely related to the increasing influence of the technocratic paradigm. As well, if you choose to include it in your chronicle, the gauntlet is home to the Avatar Storm, or Dimensional Anomaly, if you're a technocrat. The storm has a lot of history, both in the setting and in the real-world development of the books, but suffice it to say that it can make crossing the gauntlet much more difficult. Just across the gauntlet is what is known as the penumbra. This is considered Earth's shadow or reflection, and it's where all the other umbral realms have a connection to Earth. If one were to use their senses to look across the gauntlet, such as to see spirits, they would see the spirit world as it overlays Earth. Someone could potentially do this with mind or entropy should they wish to see specifically the high or low umbrae, the astral reaches or underworld respectively, and how those realms overlap Earth as well. However, for the most part, you would actually be using the spirit sphere to see those as well. It's just, if you want to be particularly creative, you could make an argument for mind or entropy. If one does manage to cross the gauntlet, and there are plenty of ways to cross with minimal issue depending on which realm you're attempting to go to, then by default one would end up in this penumbra, which the books sometimes refer to in the plural as if each realm has its own penumbra, which may or may not be accurate. If you go further than the penumbra, you can explore the near umbra, which is comprised of three locations, mostly. While, as mentioned, it's impossible to really assign a direction as we know it to any of these, they are often known as the High, Middle, and Low or Dark Umbra. Their alternative names are the Astral Reaches for the High Umbra, the Spirit Wilds for the Middle Umbra, and the Underworld for the Low Umbra. And those are the names we will use here, so there is hopefully less confusion. The Astral Reaches are the spiritual realms of abstract thought and concepts. It's a land of metaphors and platonic forms and is most easily accessed by the mind sphere as moving into the astral reaches physically is possible, but can cause you some problems with your physical pattern existing in such an abstract space. While traveling astrally, your physical stats are replaced by your mental ones and willpower is used as your health. Astral time does not flow the same way as it does in the real world, as it depends more on your state of mind than the actual concept of time. If you've ever been focused intently on something and found that time sped by without you noticing it, it's a similar idea in the astral reaches. As one moves further into the reaches, or if you prefer, as you progress upwards, you move from simple and general concepts into the abstract and narrow. The middle umbra, or spirit wilds, is one of the most utilized umbral realms as it is relevant to the spirit sphere in Mage, as well as to the entire setting of Werewolf the Apocalypse. While the high and low umbrae have a somewhat hierarchical design, 
Understanding still that directionality is all but impossible to substantiate, the middle umbra goes outwards or sideways, which leads to the term stepping sideways used by both the Garu, the werewolves in Werewolf the Apocalypse, and mages alike. The middle umbra contains 13 individual and distinct realms, collectively known as the Near Realms, ranging from Panagia, a primal reflection of Earth as it was before civilization and even human history, to the Atrocity Realm or the Wasteland, which is where the worst cruelties and tortures have been immortalized, or Cyber Realm, known as Dystopia to Mages, where the constructs of the Weaver, a great spirit that I will explain momentarily, have run amok, building a vast and powerful reflection of the information age with areas like the Pit, an underworld of discarded dreams, or the Computer Web, where raw data is embodied in spirit form. In anticipation of the next episode of Paradox, a brief overview of spirits themselves is warranted. Spirits are disembodied entities that originate in and usually dwell in the Umbra, and for that reason, some mages call them the Umbrood. Wraiths and demons are considered more specialized types of spirits, and many references to spirits specifically do not include these two types of beings. Spirits can occasionally materialize in the physical world or bind themselves to a mortal via possession. There are plenty of write-ups on spirits, both from the werewolf and the mage perspectives, which are addition-dependent, but the gist is that most things have a spirit, even if they aren't sentient beings. There are spirits of hatred, blood, technology, electricity, death, joy, depression, family, or even elemental spirits of fire, air, water, earth, and even wood or metal. Of course, there are many other potential types of spirits. They generally have abilities based on their overall nature, and they can be found in the penumbra as reflections of the physical world, or deeper in the umbral realms, though the ones you find in those depths are often the more powerful cousins of the penumbral ones. Werewolf the Apocalypse presents the mythology of the Triad, the three greatest entities in the spiritual hierarchy that are responsible for the creation, preservation, and destruction of all things. Of course, opinions differ and stories are contradictory, but as they are occasionally referenced in the mage setting, there is merit in discussing them. The triad provides balance between the creation of chaos by the wild, the preservation of order, form, and function by the weaver, and the destruction of the worm. According to the stories, these three are out of balance in the modern world, leading to an upswing in the worm's power, bringing the apocalypse ever closer. Most mages, even those well-versed in spirit magic or dimensional science, won't be encountering or dealing with the triad or truly any extremely powerful spirits. However, if a storyteller wishes to delve into that world, perhaps with werewolf NPCs or a chronicle that spends a lot of time across the gauntlet, the werewolf supplements are a great addition to the mage books for expanding your understanding of those entities. Moving on to other umbral realms, fundamentally, the underworld is composed of memories. It is the domain of the dead and is the setting for Wraith the Oblivion, unless you would prefer to leave Wraith out of your game, in which case you could model a more mage-centric underworld after the Astral Reaches or Spirit Wilds, but with a more entropic leaning. The underworld is where dead people, and only people, sometimes go. It's a place of memory and dissolution, so like the High Umbra, it has a hierarchy of slices, and like the Middle Umbra, it gets progressively more messed up the farther away from the Gauntlet, which is also known as the Shroud, that you get. At the metaphysical bottom of reality is oblivion, a gnawing hole comprised of entropy itself, which is a constantly churning force of destruction and madness that is patient and enduring, simply waiting for all of existence to come to it as it eventually will. In addition to these realms in the near umbra, there are independent regions that exist between and across and operate with completely unique physics and laws that set them apart from the others. These regions are called zones. Some are visited on a nearly casual basis, other zones are more difficult to reach, and some can only be seen from the outside but not entered, while others seem to operate in completely random patterns with regard to accessibility. Without going into deep detail about all of the zones, two of the known ones are more prominent than the others, though of course it is up to the storyteller whether to put focus on any of the zones at all. These zones are the Dreaming, which is more relevant to the Changeling the Dreaming line than Mage, and the digital web, which was developed by the virtual adepts. The dreaming is generally considered a zone by mages, but could be considered a realm of its own with Arcadia, the home of the fae, in the middle. The second edition mage supplement, Beyond the Barriers, The Book of Worlds, also gives a description of the Maya, or the dream realm, which M20 states contains the dreaming. However, the descriptions have never matched up. As with dreams themselves, the short descriptions provided by the books can be interpreted in many ways, and the final call is, as always, ultimately up to the storyteller. 
The digital web is likely the most utilized zone in all of Mage, in games set in the modern age anyway. Alan Turing, canonically part of the virtual adepts in the world of darkness, developed a simulated reality and projected his avatar into it via a telephone line. Something went wrong, with theories ranging from there being an error in his calculations to an assassination by technocrats while his mind was absent, and he died. However, his death transformed the simulation into an early version of the digital web and caused the virtual adepts to flee the technocracy for good. A mage or technocrat can visit the digital web with their senses through tools like virtual reality gear, they can visit astrally using the correspondence sphere to shift their senses that way, or they can wholly translate themselves into the digital web and leave no physical body behind in the physical world, or what virtual adepts tend to refer to as meat space. Much like the gauntlet separates the material world from the near umbra, another barrier called the horizon separates the near umbra from the areas beyond. This bit gets a little confusing with mage naming conventions yet again because there are two barriers known as the first horizon and the far horizon for some reason, and the space between them is sometimes called the true horizon. Let me try to explain. The limit of physical reality used to be the Earth's atmosphere. You didn't have to go adventuring to slip through a shallowing. You could also just go up. Mundane space didn't exist at all until the technocracy encouraged sleeper scientists to probe, investigate, and publish about it, leading to consensus and the gauntlet expanding outwards. This split the undifferentiated umbra outside of the Earth's atmosphere, that delimiter becoming known as the first horizon, into the vacuum of space in physical reality on one side and its umbra reflection in the other. This region of the spirit wilds or middle umbra is commonly referred to as ether space, or more confusingly, the true horizon. The expansion slash division of space in this way only extended to the solar system's inner planets, though. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter became a second horizon, the far horizon. Beyond the asteroid belt in both physical space and ether space is the undifferentiated deep umbra. In ether space, one can find several shard realms and so-called horizon realms, since mages really like naming everything with horizon. These shard realms are umbra realms that are connected to one of the nine spheres of magic and map physically to one of the planets, even Pluto. Each shard realm also has a corresponding shade realm that manifests within that first horizon, like a shadow. At least that's the way M20 describes it. Revised, restricted shade realms and made them only reachable from the corresponding shard realm, so the choice is yours for how you treat them. Horizon realms are pocket universes that require a connection to a node on Earth, as they must be supplied with quintessence in order to sustain their existence. A node is a natural wellspring of quintessence, so it provides an easy supply to the realm. The most well-known Horizon realms include Horizon, a stronghold for the Nine Traditions that was built in the 1450s and acted much like the United Nations for Mages, as well as Balador, which was the pride and joy of the Cult of Ecstasy, and Autochthonia, the off-world home of the Iteration X. Many of these realms were destroyed or unmoored when the Avatar Storm hit, if you subscribe to that metaplot, and those who were there eventually became disembodied spirits. However, if you are running a game without the Avatar Storm, they may still exist. Beyond the far horizon lies the Deep Umbra, an immense void with few touch points for mages or technocrats to hold on to. There are, of course, the remaining shard and shade realms that map to the rest of the planets, and the Void Engineers created one of their main bases, the Copernicus Research Center, also known as the COP, in the Deep Umbra to monitor for extraterrestrial threats. Otherwise, the Deep Umbra is home to strange alien creatures, weird space things, and some marauders and nefandi. Sometimes classified in relation to the Deep Umbra, but which are really a thing of their own, there are also Paradox Realms. These are private realms created by the extensive paradox accumulated in a particularly vulgar mage. They often take on forms related to the offense that triggered them. The technocracy follows a different theory of the universe developed by Tychoides, the founder of the modern void engineers, in order to explain the spiritual dimension in terms of enlightened science. According to this Tychoidean cosmology, the cosmos acts as a hypercomputer that is able to generate infinite continuous processing which sentient beings can tap into and use to generate their own reality models. What this mostly means is that the technocracy explains the varying umbral realms by believing in the reality of conventional space, which is the area perceivable by the masses and regular science up to the asteroid belt, and that any phenomena that occur outside of consensus fall into subdimensions that the void engineers believe represent mathematical shadows of accepted aspects of reality. 
While each subdimension has its own technocratic explanation, they map directly to the same umbral realms that mages observe, just with different names. The astral reaches are called ensemble space, the spirit wilds are called biospheric space, the underworld is called entropic space. The first horizon is known as the biospheric horizon, while the far horizon is the spatial horizon, and the space between them, the reflection of conventional space, is known as subspace, and is home to several quantum dimensions, which may just know as shard realms. The deep umbra is known as the deep universe to technocrats, and it's a place where consensus reality stops existing, leading to paradox targeting technocrats more than mages. Zones, as mages call them, create an interesting problem for technocrats, which they have solved by calling them Everett Volumes, based probably off of the many worlds interpretation in quantum mechanics proposed by Hugh Everett in 1957. Essentially, it's one of the many multiverse hypotheses. However, there is one zone that technocrats and mages somewhat agree upon, the digital web, especially as it became more and more integrated into consensus. So today we've embarked on a long but incomplete journey through the labyrinthine cosmos of Mage the Ascension. In this mystical odyssey, we've unraveled the complex terminology and interwoven concepts of a world where belief and intention shape the very fabric of reality. As mages and storytellers, we are invited to navigate this boundless realm of infinite possibilities, all while recognizing that the mage cosmology doesn't neatly align with our conventional understanding of the universe. As we move forward in our exploration of Mage the Ascension, remember that the cosmos is a place of endless wonder and complexity. The Tellurian, the Tapestry, and the Gauntlet are just the beginning of a journey filled with realms, magic, and potential. So, dear mages and seekers of the arcane, continue your exploration, question everything, and keep the magic alive. We'll be back soon with more tales from the magical cosmos. Until then, may your reality be ever expensive, and may you find magic in the most unexpected places. Happy Friday the 13th, and stay tuned for more adventures beyond the gauntlet. You've been listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast, and you can find us wherever you can find podcasts. If actual plays are up your alley, check out Dorktales on twitch.tv dorktales or youtube.com dorktales. Find us on the Dorktales Discord server, or check out our website at dorktales.ca. We are currently streaming a Mage the Victorian era game on Saturdays. Our Patreon subscribers have early access to the Technocracy Zero Sum game, which is also starting to roll out on YouTube for the general public. And we have several Mage one-shots and a short-run chronicle called Breaking Tradition on YouTube. Additionally, we are starting to roll out our Mage the Victorian era game in podcast form over on the Dorktales Podbean channel, also found wherever you can find podcasts. Finally, as always, there's also all of our other amazing content. Thanks for listening, and remember to always keep your magic coincidental, unless it's Fireball. Again, if you enjoyed that, please search Paradox on Podbean. This has been Mage the Podcast, where we thank you all for starting with Mage 201 when there never really was a Mage 101. This episode was made possible by Ben Bendlow, Oracle of the Paradigm Alien Makes Us Who We Are, because Ridley Scott's masterful directing is an inspiration to every mage. Buck Gregory, Oracle of the Paradigm All Power Comes from Cod, that nutritious, dense, flaky white fish. Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Paradigm of All the Worlds a Stage, and we can only do magic when the Stagehands Union says that we can. Guy Stewart, Oracle of the Paradigm Ancient Wisdom is the Key. What locket fits? I'm not sure. Jay Widener, Oracle of the Paradigm Consciousness is the only true reality, which, I mean, is technically true. I don't really see what they're trying to do. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of the Paradigm Embrace the Threshold, which gives you exceptional powers to hold onto door frames. Mikhail, Oracle of the Paradigm of a Holographic Reality, which was really big in the 70s when there was over 500 holographic museum exhibits, and it's kind of just faded from then. Pukaji, Oracle of the Paradigm Transcend Your Limits, which is fine until Paradox takes the form of plentiful speeding tickets. Sean Gallagher, Oracle of the Paradigm Turning the Keys to Reality, which is literally what magic is. Again, 
These paradigms are terribly named. And finally, the crew of Erebus. Oracle of the paradigm, we are not men which was originally We Are Not Men, We Are Devo, but was cut because there wasn't enough space. Also thanks to Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsick, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Aron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex Alexia, Ambiversion, Andrews S. Anon, Badurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scrimder, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwank, Fragger Rock, Friedrich Owl, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Eobold, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., Jervis Johnson, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klimanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rubem Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kennedy, Samuel Tobin, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrace Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, and William Martin. Our EP shout-out this week is to Jervis Johnson, who makes me think of Port Jarvis, the town at the confluence of the Neversink and Delaware Rivers. Neversink is a corruption of an Algonquin word meaning Mand River. It is also the location where dry fly fishing was invented. Hot cha! Originally named Makahamak, it was burned down by the joint efforts of the British and the Mohawk in 1779, was slowly rebuilt over two decades. It was eventually incorporated as a village in 1953, and it became a full-fledged town in 1907. It reached its peak population in 1930 and has been slowly shrinking since. Port Jarvis contains the Tri-State Monument, which I was really hoping was haunted, but it just seems to be a stone block celebrating where Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey come together. It is also very near the the obelisk marking the highest point in New Jersey across the river, which is also sadly not haunted. When I think of unassuming stone markers, though, I'll think of Jervis Johnson. If you'd rather listen on YouTube, search Mates the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at matesthepodcast at gmail.com or at matesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash matesthepodcast. Mates the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at matesthepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.